Welcome to Fast Fiction Podcasts and part one of The Golden Girl. Young women in the 2020s have a vastly different life of those of 60 years ago. So sit back and enjoy the time walk that will take you to the swinging 60s. Listen and learn. The Golden Girl. We were both 18 and from the moment I met her at my local bus stop, I envied everything about her. Margaret G. was beautiful, elegant, well-spoken, intelligent, funny and confident. Everything I was not. She was my senior by only two weeks, but we shared a regular joke where I would often comment, I want to be just like you when I grow up, only I wasn't joking. She would toss her lovely long black hair, pull a silly face before flashing a radiant smile in a cheeky grin and say, be careful what you wish for. It just might come true. We lived in a little township called Wallington in Surrey, England. These days it has been swallowed up by outer London, but back in the 60s it still had a village feel about it, with small independent groceries with shopkeepers who would keep aside a nice cup of bacon for you and comment on your new hairstyle without fear of having a lawsuit slapped on them for sexual discrimination. Although working as secretaries in different organisations a few miles away, we frequently found ourselves sharing the same bus, making an otherwise tiring and onerous journey enjoyable by swapping the daily office stories, though mostly Mags talked while I listened. This was a rare occurrence for me, but in truth I was totally mesmerised by her perfect life. In addition to her savoir-faire looks and personality, she had a comfortably wealthy, loving family who were all good-looking, clever and witty and interested in what she did. Whereas mine, well, mine were just boring. Her parents had encouraged her to study for university because You're a smart girl and the world is your oyster. Whereas mine followed the premise It's not much point. You're not needed when you're married with kids. Oh, and to be so lucky... She had a drop-dead gorgeous lawyer boyfriend. Although as bright as a new coin, she had elected not to go to university. Yet. So our friendship blossomed from trips to work into nights out together, and there were lots of occasions when we shared some high adventures. The sort that always start months later with, Hey, do you remember when... And finished up with lots of giggles. Going out together in the evenings was great too. Mags deftly guided me through my fashion choices, taught me how to apply makeup, and even how to differentiate between good and bad pickup lines. What's a nice girl like you doing in a dump like this? While she was undoubtedly the draw card, we found the interest of young men never lacking and had our pick of the male version of eye candy, some of whom actually had brains as well as brawn. While this was fun for a good many months, I was surprised, then delighted, when Mags casually informed me that she was to be married in the spring and asked me to be her bridesmaid. Would I ever? Wow! I didn't know too much about David, her fiancé, and in fact only met him a couple of times. He seemed nice, but in my opinion, just not right for Mags. Yes, he had a good job, junior partner in a small law firm. Yes, he was good-looking. And yes, his family were all very pleasant, but he wasn't much fun, and I thought Mags could do much better. Of course, I didn't actually say as much, exactly, 
but I certainly didn't wax lyrical about him either. As girls of the mid-sixties, we prepared for the wedding in all the silly girlish ways that brides and bridesmaids-to-be do. All the important stuff necessary prior to getting married. Choose the dress, the shoes, veil, bouquet, accessories and flowers. Model the hair, the makeup and nail colour. Discuss with her parents the wedding invitation and reception details. Not leaving too much time to discuss with David where they were going to actually live. Mags was going to walk down the aisle in an exquisite, full-length, full-skirted, billowy white dress and I would be similarly clad in cotton candy pink. Our hair would be matching bouffant beehives and whereas Mags would wear the traditional lace veil, I would be adorned with little pink rosebuds scattered via an assortment of fine hair grips and cemented in with volumes of hard lacquer. Very 60s. The day itself dawned bright and sunny, though with a certain nip in the air. Encouraging me to finally decide on a pair of thick, knee-high hockey socks to wear under my full-length boofy dress. The light breeze encouraged the hairdresser to ensure that my upswept random Bridget Bardot curls would outlast an atomic bomb blast, and my fingernails, grown to a tapered length almost impossible to associate with my fingers, were polished to match the fake rosebuds tumbling over and around my head and strewn liberally over my bodice. This was an age when parents were more inclined to be keepers of their daughter's virginity rather than overly protective against sniffles. So there was little interest from either of mine when I forlornly hinted that a lift to Mags's house may be appropriate in preserving all the manufactured beauty I had mustered. It was to be a late morning wedding in a nearby church with reception in the function room in the adjacent garden so my virtue was unlikely to be in jeopardy. But being a Saturday morning, my parents were going to be busy, and I was left to my own devices in a world that had yet to invent Uber or the means of teenage girls to pay for it. So, with no car ride available, there was little recourse than make my way on five-inch stilettos to Mag's house just a few blocks away, which I did. I sort of enjoyed a few funny looks and even an occasional wolf whistle. This was the age when young women did not feel insulted by such behaviour, and indeed it did enormous good for one's ego, especially when dressed like a pink marshmallow. I arrived to find her calm but quiet. I did all that was required of me as chief and only bridesmaid, and helped her into her wedding gown with all the traditional paraphernalia in the customary manner. Needless to say, she was gorgeous, and assured me she had no need of the extra pair of hockey socks I had brought in case, like me, she was cold. Everything went according to plan. At the appointed hour, and just fashionably ten minutes late, I was ministering to my beautiful bride, as she walked on her father's arm down the floral-decked aisle to stand beside David, who looked happy and handsome. The two sets of in-laws either side were dressed in stylish splendour and well represented by equally elegant family members who all looked as if they were about to attend a royal tea party. 
The small church was full of flowers, and as the bridal couple stood before the altar, the congregation hushed with only the occasional sniffling of the romantics. Oh, doesn't she look gorgeous? Oh! It was a nice service, with all of us singing and praying in harmony. Unlike the reality shows of today, where couples meet for the first time, insist that their love will last forever and split up the next, we were all well aware of the sanctity and sobriety of the occasion. Finally, we got to the bit where the clergyman asked David if he would take Mags as his lawful wife. David replied with an enthusiastic, I do. Now it was Mags' turn. Would she take David for her lawful wedded husband? To love, honour and cherish for as long as you both shall live. There was a moment's hesitation before her answer. No. After what seemed an interminable silence, the clergyman asked her again. This time, with no hesitation whatsoever, the answer came back. No, I'm sorry. I've changed my mind. A collective gasp of incredulity went up and down the church pews, with the occasional whispering of, What did she say? Did she say no? Yes, she said no. Why? She gave no reason, or indeed any other comment. In fact, having delivered this bomb, she promptly turned and in swift, purposeful steps, made her way back up the aisle on a cloud of white lace and a lingering fragrance of jasmine. I had not totally comprehended any of this, and for a moment or two just stood imitating a goldfish as I watched her disappear down the aisle. Then I saw the look of horror on both parents' faces and was galvanised into action. Painfully aware that although I was unsophisticated and inexperienced in wedding etiquette, as the only bridesmaid, I had an obligation to service the bride. So, although not strictly sure what I should do, I think I muttered, Um, sorry about that. And with swirling petticoats, hoisted to knee highs to show off just a little more of hockey socks than I would have preferred, turned on my heels to follow. To my knowledge, no one else moved. Outside the church, I saw my quarry still looking ethereal in her white, frothy gown, standing by a request bus stop, waving down a red double-decker number 93 bus, which was lumbering along the high street. How she managed to get on with elegance and dignity, I can't imagine, as all I could manage was to call out, Hey! Wait for me! As I followed in a gate more suitable for the hockey field, I just managed to reach the bus as it took off, and now with a gigantic leap, somewhat reminiscent of my last attempt at hurdles years before, I managed to scramble beside her onto the landing platform. Then, despite being hindered by copious metres of fluffy nylon net and hoop petticoat, I followed her up the narrow circular stair and down the equally narrow gangway to the front of the bus. Feeling just a tad conspicuous, I eased my way to sit beside her, desperately trying to think of something appropriate to say. I felt quite inadequate to the task, as I was not really equipped to be a standard run-of-the-mill bridesmaid, let alone escort to a runaway bride. Fares, please. Fares, please. I was even more embarrassed a minute later when we both had to admit to the bewildered bus conductor who had followed us up the stairs. Um, I'm sorry. We, we don't have any money. 
Thankfully, he was not overly surprised. After all, it's not normally expected that a bride or bridesmaid would need to carry loose change for bus fare to or from a wedding. Add to that neither of us were acquainted with the number 93 and had no idea where it went. Not that it mattered, as Mags hadn't worked that far ahead and didn't really know where she wanted to go. Fortunately, the bus conductor had never been involved in this kind of scenario either, so just grunted something inaudible and disappeared downstairs to his normal, everyday paying customers. Mag simply sat quietly looking ahead, with arms folded in the mound of white froth that was her lap. Totally out of my comfort zone, I spent most of the time trying to fish out the errant bobby pins that were beginning to work their way out of my hair and down my bodice. Everybody off now. Come on. Everybody off. Come on, ladies and gentlemen. Everybody off. It was about 40 minutes later that we arrived at the bus station, where there was no alternative but to get off. Up to this point, neither of us had said a word. Conscious that my bridesmaid duties had been somewhat extended, I decided to take charge, and once alighted into the vast, dirty, cavernous home of a hundred buses, I told Mags to sit in the waiting room while I went to the local post office to extricate some money from my post office savings account. How I was going to do this with no passbook or ID, I have no idea, so in spite of good intent, I wavered slightly when going past the police station. A very nice policeman sat at the desk and only blinked slightly at what must have looked a rather odd sight. My pink marshmallow was rather grubby by now and a good many hairpin rosebuds had made their escape from my birdcage coiffure as I tried to explain our predicament. He listened quietly, didn't believe me, called in an associate. Here, Dave, come and listen to this. Before agreeing to accompany me back to the bus station and Mags. When we got there, she had gone. With no money and dressed more suitably for a masquerade ball than a bus trip through suburbia, I had little option than to be taken home in the police car. My parents, home from shopping, were not pleased with this, especially as it was obvious it had been noticed by the neighbours behind the lace curtains. They demanded an explanation, but of course I had none. As soon as possible, I rang Mag's parents, thinking that by now they would have left the church and gone home. But there was no reply. My next call was to the vestry at the church. I was told that the wedding party had adjourned to the function room next door, as another bridal party was due in at 2pm. Of course, this was when even landlines were a luxury, and the technology of Doctor Who and Maxwell Smart's shoe phones were not even on the blueprint table. So there was little recourse then for me to quickly change into a t-shirt and jeans and head back to the church. While my attire was now a little more practical, I had not thought to take an umbrella, and it had just started to rain. Thankfully, I did not have to see what this did to my elaborate coiffure, but only too aware that nearly all the rosebuds adorning my hair were now trailing loose and residues of pink dye were streaming down my face, arms and hands. This now mixed with the heavy layers of now smudged black mascara had resulted into panda eyes and must have been very scary. 
Fortunately, it was not far to the church, and within a few minutes I was in the midst of the still dumbstruck residue of the wedding party. Realising that they had an obligation to feed their guests, and that everything had already been paid for in advance, Mac's parents had decided to go on with the reception, albeit without the bride and groom. Yes, the bride had disappeared, but apparently the groom and his folks had also vamoosed into the unknown. The wedding singer, a smooth young man geared up to sing the romantic hits of the day, was nervously trying to work up a new repertoire with little success. The only songs he knew were those with lyrics with the moon rhyming with June and trysts of undying love in every chorus. After a while, he just gave up and resorted to his personal preference, which was the new age punk rock. The only change of plan was in the consumption of alcohol, which Mag's father had deemed now inappropriate. Instead, we all sat drinking copious cups of tea and shaking our heads to repeat, Well, I don't know. I really don't know. David, still in a state of shock, arrived back at the hall and said he had rung the police station to try to relegate Mags as a missing person, but had been told not to worry, as without money and attired in bridal gown, they felt she would turn up very soon. Then everybody looked at me. I related my slightly different version, but reiterated that it was not easy roaming the streets of London in a crinoline and five-inch stilettos. However, I agreed she would no doubt return soon, an apologetic and chastened bride. But she did not. Where she went and how she got there remained a mystery for a very long time. To all intents and purposes, Mags had gone out of my life. I missed her dreadfully, and for some inexplicit reason felt guilty that I had not kept tabs on her when I had the chance. It was almost a year later I received the postcard. No message or address, simply pictures of a holiday-type venue and a wish you were here. Love, Mags. Scrawled on the back, posted from a place I had never heard of in Spain. This was followed up a month or two later by a similar card from a different location, with the same message. One day, this varied slightly with a see you soon as a postscript. She came back into my life a while later, much as she had entered it at the bus stop. I recognised the smart green coat immediately, but the girl inside it was a very different Mags to the one who wore it so confidently before. For one thing, she had put on weight and had cut her luxuriant long hair into a plebeian bob, not totally unattractive, but with none of the wow factor. But perhaps the biggest and worst change was that her beautiful face was now covered in the most horrendous outbreak of acne, pockmarked and ugly. It was impossible to ignore. She greeted me, I thought, with as much delight as I greeted her. But immature as I was back then, I knew enough not to ask any difficult questions. Instead, she told me that she had travelled Europe and using her reasonable fluency in schoolgirl German and French, had worked her way around the Riviera, doing odd jobs at first, mostly clerical work in small factories. This, 
had allowed her to save a reasonable sum of money, regain a little confidence, and eventually felt it was time to come home. She was living with her parents again, and picking up on her old life as best she could. She apologised profusely for not getting in touch sooner, though neglected to say why, and after a few hugs I told her not to worry about it, as I was simply glad she was back. My life, too, had changed substantially in the last few months. I was now engaged with a fiancé who wished to go overseas in order to study for a PhD. In fact, we were due to leave for Australia as part of the brain drain within the month. I had also changed my job and for the last six months had been working for the perfume company Chanel. By the more extraordinary coincidence, that was where Mags was about to start work. Yes, in a strange twist of fate, we found that she had been chosen as my eventual replacement. On arrival at work, we both went to the washroom to stow our coats and make ready for work. In those days, it meant further layers of lacquer on already bouffant hair, another retouch of lipstick, and, in Mag's case, an extra layer of foundation cream over the acne. She saw me watching her in the mirror and made a small grimace. Pretty revolting, isn't it? she said. I shook my head and loyally replied, Mags, you're still gorgeous, following with my long-standing joke. And I still want to be like you when I grow up. She laughed, her old, radiant smile lighting up her face, encouraging me to ask, So, so what happened, Mags? She shook her head, the smile and sparkle gone. I, I stuffed up, she said, then turned and headed for the door. It seemed that we had picked up where we had left off, although the friendship was limited as I was due to leave for Australia within a few weeks. However, in my lacklustre way and aware of my lacklustre parents, my fiancé and I had decided a quick registry office affair would suffice. It was simply a means to get a marriage license in order to obtain a passport. We would have a church blessing to appease his parents just before leaving for the airport. A few days before our departure, on our £10 passage honeymoon, three young men of my acquaintance suggested they hold a leaving party for me and JC. The man I had decided was the man I would cherish and love. Yada, yada, yada. I was delighted with the idea and, of course, asked if I could bring anything. Now, that was a silly question to ask of three bachelors in the 60s, as it turned out I was expected to bring quite a lot. In addition to the food, we found they had need of cutlery, crockery and glassware, they had said, generously adding, this was partly true, as the small semi-detached house they rented in outer London had an equally small garden, but it did back onto the local cemetery, which was huge. I had known the young bachelors a number of years. They were an odd bunch, Ken the Yorkshireman, Gordon the Scot, and Ron the Welsh. All three were apprentices at a large electrical engineering firm, and like all trainees in those days, living on peanuts and beer. Why don't you come, I asked Mags on our way to my last day of work. JC and I can pick you up and bring you back. We don't want to be too late, mind, as what with getting married and going to Australia. We have a big day tomorrow. The party was no better or worse than expected in the early 60s. Giggling girls, groping guys, a bit of pot being smoked, music being played loud, 
and lots of smooching. We had picked up Mags from her home and I had immediately felt the old rush of admiration and envy. She looked stunning. She had learnt to use the heavy foundation to work over the acne in a subtle, unobtrusive way. Lost a lot of weight, grown the striking black hair into a lustrous Perrault faucet bob, and the rest was sheer magnetic personality. I was thrilled that she was on her way back, but already a little sad and nervous that I wouldn't be around to enjoy her friendship any longer. By midnight, JC and I began saying our emotional farewells, and I went looking for Mags. She could not be found. I wandered around the house looking and asking, and eventually got directed to a bedroom door by a John Lennon lookalike, as he pointed to a do not disturb sign on the door with a knowing wink. Now, in those days, good girls didn't do that, but apparently Mags did, and had. A little surprising as Ron, a.k.a. Taffy, was hardly a romantic Romeo, nor even a fifth-rate David. He was short, thin, fair, lifeless hair and freckles, and worked as a manual labourer. I stood in the corridor for a minute, wondering if I should knock on the door. I decided against it on the chance of instigating a quietus interruptus, which at that young age I had little personal knowledge other than to know I would not be welcome. The next day, JC and I had our big day. It was a small family affair in the church in which JC had been christened. I wore a practical black and white and red ensemble on which I piled a reversible black and red cape with a stylish matador hat with a limited airline baggage allowance of £20 We wore as much as possible, very sensible, but not particularly suitable for the oncoming 36-hour air flight. We both arrived at the church unfashionably punctual. JC's father had bought a new suit for the occasion because his old one, that had last seen daylight at his uncle's funeral 15 years before, was now full of moth holes. JC's mother had bought a new coat, which she assured us had been on sale and was worth the extravagance as it was much warmer than her old one that she had been wearing for 20 years. My parents, not particularly bothered with church services, simply called in on their way to Saturday morning shopping. For the sake of JC's mum, much of it was like a proper ceremony without the legal paperwork, which of course had already been completed weeks before, at our registry office lunch break ceremony. We both said, I do, at the appropriate moment, and within minutes were on our way to the airport and the other side of the world. I had already said farewell to friends, now said farewell to family, and had more than a tear in my eye, especially as there was one special friend still missing. Once again, Mags had gone out of my life without saying goodbye. You have been listening to part one of The Golden Girl, written, narrated and produced by Brianda Cross, with inserts by John Cross. Why not subscribe to the Fast Fiction Podcasts so that you can be sure to be advised when part two is released in a day or two? Oh, and we'd love a review on the iTunes, if you can spare the time. Thank you.